Coming to you live from the Republic of Texas and broadcasting around the world, this is the Max McGuire Show. This is our last chance to take this country back. That's true. Listen, it doesn't matter that Joe Biden is losing his mind. He still betrayed this country. Come on, man. So get ready, because the Max McGuire Show starts right now. Welcome back to another edition of the Max McGuire Show. Of course, my name is Max McGuire. It's good to be with everyone again. It's been a minute. It's been a while since I last did a podcast episode. I think about four months, which is incredible. This was my day-to-day life for so long. Um, If you had told me a year ago that I would go four months without doing a podcast episode, I would not believe you. But here we are. But all good things. Uh, Nothing bad. There's no bad reason behind uh, my hiatus. Um, all good things. And I am, I am really looking forward to doing more of these episodes now that I've been able to put what was in front of me behind me. So let's go ahead and do this. Let's call the past episodes. We'll call those season one. Let's take down the title. That's no good. This is going to be season two. Episode 2.01. This is season two, fresh slate, lots to talk about. Um, I guess I'll get it way, out of the way right from the beginning. The reason that I took a, um, a little hiatus was that I was served a subpoena um, to testify in one of Eric Coomer's lawsuits, uh, his lawsuit against Mike Lindell. And anyone who's ever followed me and watched me on my old podcast or watched me here, I'm a firm believer in remaining silent because there's nothing you can say that can make you more innocent, chances are if you talk, it'll only make it worse for you. Some people that I know don't ascribe to that, and it's kind of worked out a little bit differently for them. But I have always been committed to, especially when there's things like defamation lawsuits at play, don't talk about it. Don't talk about that person anymore. Because you you start at innocent, right? And every time you talk, you get less and less innocent. You can't be more innocent than innocent. So I was subpoenaed, not as a uh, as a defendant, but as a witness, and I, w- I was on the fence. I was figuring, okay, I'll, I'll keep doing the show, but then I noticed in one of Eric Coomer's lawyer's briefs that they had actually cited my podcast in a footnote, and then that made me say, okay, whoa, 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 even though I am very careful about what I say, even though I am very careful at making sure that I don't speak too much about certain topics, it was still finding its way into the footnotes of lawsuits against Mike Lindell, which is, is crazy. Again, if you told me a year ago that would be happening, I wouldn't believe you. So I made the conscious decision not to do any more podcast episodes until that was behind me. I did that testimony back in November. It went as well as it possibly could have gone. Um, I was represented by Randy Corcoran, who is a, a fantastic guy, a great lawyer. Um, I, I appreciate that so, so very much. And uh, I, I sat for the deposition. It lasted seven hours, eight hours. Um, told the truth. And anyone who's been watching me the last couple of years, you know what the truth is. And uh, I think it went very, very, very well. There were a couple of times where uh, Eric Coomer's people tried to get me to say some not very conservative stuff. And I just stuck to my ground and, uh, and kept speaking the truth. So I, I thought it went very well. And my intention was to come back and start doing podcasts immediately after that was done. Well, that was about a month and a half ago, and life just got in the way. And before you know it, it's a new year. 
but I'm not going to let that happen anymore. I am going to start doing these podcasts again. Not going to be every day. It's not going to be every other day. I have to figure out the actual time for these podcasts. Um, I don't know if they're going to be live or pre-recorded, but I, I want to do this again because I feel like I feel like there's a lot that I need to say, and I feel like the positions that I hold aren't necessarily represented in a lot of the mediums that I would expect them to be. So let's get into this. Yesterday, House of Representatives now under Republican control, which when I last did a podcast episode, it was not. That's how long it's been. House of Representatives now under Republican control introduced a bill, H.R. 26, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. This bill is as common sense as it gets. It would require that doctors um, take care of babies that end up being born alive after failed, unsuccessful abortion procedures. So the abortionists work overtime, work as hard as they can to kill the baby. It doesn't work. The baby's born alive. There's a kicking, crying infant in that abortion room. And this bill, if passed into law, would force that abortionist to actually keep the baby alive, try to keep the baby alive, and transfer the baby to a hospital. Before we get into all the specifics of that, I need to explain to you why this legislation is necessary. The left does a very good job at portraying conservative pieces of legislation as if they're superfluous, not necessary, you don't really need them. And they say in this case that you don't need the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act because it's already a crime to kill another human being, it's murder, so... Rather than create a new crime, let's just charge the abortionists with murder. Well, as we'll see a little bit later in this episode, when I talk about the butcher of a human, Kermit Gosnell, you'll see that it's not that easy to charge abortionists with murder. In 2002, there was a bill passed under George W. Bush called the Born Alive Infants Protection Act. Um, I have a little bit of that right here. The Born Alive Infants Protection Act of 2002. And what this legislation did is it amended the U.S. Code, federal law, to state that when a baby is born alive after a failed abortion attempt, that baby is a human being. It's a person. Now, that's important because the definition of a person determines what federal laws can apply to them. So making that baby a person, all of a sudden, a whole host of federal laws apply to the, the, the born alive baby, the person. This bill, I'll go ahead and read it for everyone who is listening to the podcast, which again, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the audio podcast available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, iHeart, TuneIn, all those places. Links in the description. It's been a while since I've said that. I had to think about the list a little bit in my mind. I'll, I'll read it for everyone listening to the audio. As used in this section, the term born alive with respect to a member of the species Homo sapiens means the complete expulsion or extraction from his or her mother of that member at any stage of development who after such expulsion or extraction breathes or has a beating heart, pulsation of the umbilical cord, or definite movement of voluntary muscles, regardless of whether the umbilical cord has been cut and regardless of whether the expulsion or extraction occurs as a result of natural or induced labor, cesarean section, or induced abortion. And then there's a bit that nothing in this um, section will be construed to give any member of the species Homo sapiens, any rights before being born alive. This bill is common sense. When a baby is born, 
That baby is a human being. It's a person endowed by its creator with certain inalienable rights. Among those are right to life. When a baby is born alive, whether it be through an abortion procedure or a um, induced labor or, or natural labor or a C-section, the baby's a person. Well, prior to 2002, there was nothing in federal law that said when a baby is born alive after a failed abortion procedure that that baby is a person. There was nothing in there whatsoever. So in 2002, this bill was passed. And pro-life organizations, right from the get-go, were very worried. Because while this bill did redefine a person to make sure that it included born alive infants after failed abortion procedures, this legislation did not have any enforcement mechanisms. It did not actually state it was a crime, right? In order for someone to be punished for killing or neglecting a baby born alive after a botched abortion, they would have to have been charged with another federal crime. And what we saw after this bill was passed in 2002 was that no one was prosecuted under it. Again, because it doesn't actually lay out a crime a specific crime with a specific punishment. It simply says that the, the born alive baby is a person. And if you do anything to that person that violates federal law, you could be charged under federal law. Well, that's a high standard to meet. Not every state has a law on the books or has a definition of personhood that would allow for an abortionist to be charged in a similar circumstances. Sorry, I'm just adjusting my mic. It's been a while. So the mic levels are a little off. I don't have a producer. <laughs> So in 2002, this bill passes, and surprising no one, it does not lead to any prosecutions. And what we found, what the CDC found, is that from 2003 to 2014, there were, I believe if you add this up, that's 134 babies that were born alive after botched abortions that later died. 134. This is a decade-long period, 2003 to 2014, 11 years. Just for everyone listening to the podcast, the age at the baby's death, less than 10 minutes was 25. 10 to 59 minutes was 35. 1 to 4 hours was 68. 5 hours to 23 hours was 9. And 6 babies died a day or more after being born during a failed abortion. Again, I have to paint this picture that these are babies born alive after failed abortions that are dying. Now, many of them are dying from the abortion itself, but an uncomfortable number of these babies died because the abortionists and the nurses and the, and the clinic workers at that abortion facility chose not to save the baby's life. So this bill, the 2002 bill, was obviously not good enough because babies kept dying after failed abortion procedures because of neglect or deliberately being killed. So a new bill was obviously needed, and the pro-life community came up with this bill, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, H.R. 26. And you read the beginning of that bill, it states Congress's findings which is the constitutional and legal justification for this legislation. And in this bill, the findings read, if an abortion results in the live birth of an infant, the infant is a legal person for all purposes under the laws of the United States and entitled to all protection of such laws. Any if infant born alive after an abortion or within a hospital, clinic, or other facility has the same claim to protection of the law that would arise from any newborn. 
or for any person who comes to a hospital, clinic, or other facility for screening and treatment or otherwise becomes a patient within its care. It's important. So what would this bill actually do? It would require that any healthcare practitioner present at the time of an abortion procedure where a baby is born alive, any healthcare practitioner present at the time the child is born alive shall exercise the same degree of professional skill, care, and diligence to preserve the life and health of the child as a reasonably diligent and conscientious healthcare practitioner would render to any other child born alive at the same gestational age. And, following the exercise of skill, care, and diligence required under subparagraph A, ensure that the child born alive is immediately transported and admitted to a hospital. This is not controversial. OBGYNs, most abortion abortionists are OBGYNs. They have, whether now or in the past, delivered babies. They know the kind of care necessary for babies at different gestational ages. What this bill would simply require is that if a baby is born alive after a failed abortion, the abortionist has to care for them as they would if a baby was born at the same stage of development through a C-section, natural birth, or induced labor. And then, as is the case at any other time, if the baby is born alive, promptly make sure that the baby is brought to a hospital for further care. Now, that is the standard in this country. Now, in the past, babies were born at home, and that was very common. In today's day and age, unless you have a doula or a midwife at home, if the baby is born anywhere outside of a hospital, standard procedure is to bring the baby to the hospital. In many cases, a baby born at home or, or somewhere else with a midwife or a doula will still go to the hospital. That, that's the standard. That is the standard in this country. We are not just doing home births anymore. Democrats didn't like that. They didn't like the requirements that abortionists, A, have to save these babies' lives, and B, have to transport them to a hospital. Now, I want to show you why this legislation is necessary. And I apologize for everyone who's going to watch this, read this, listen to this. Um, these are really, we have, we have to talk about some really evil things right now. Much of the pro-life movement, much of the legislation that the pro-life movement has introduced in the last decade has stemmed from a case that was so evil, so deprived, uh, so, uh, so depraved that it shocked the conscience of everyone who learned about it. And I'm of course I'm, of course, talking about Kermit Gosnell. Kermit Gosnell ran an abortion facility in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and it was his little shop of horrors. He was a despicable human being. He provided absolutely, it's not even a healthcare facility. It, it, it is just an abortion mill. If you haven't already, I strongly recommend that you read the grand jury report that came out after he was uh, investigated and indicted. It is, um, it's really, it's hard to read. Realizing just how depraved someone like that can be, someone who claims to be helping their community, um, how depraved of a person he was. I want to read a little bit from that grand jury report. 
Before I get into this, I need to explain one more thing that Kermit Gosnell didn't actually like performing abortions. What he would instead do is induce labor, have women deliver their babies alive, and then he would murder them. Yeah, so Kermit Gosnell wasn't actually an abortionist. He was just a murderer. It's important to know that to understand what I'm about to read. Quote, there remained, however, a final difficulty. When you perform late-term abortions by inducing labor, you get babies. Living, breathing, squirming babies. By 24 weeks, most babies born prematurely will survive if they receive appropriate medical care. But that was not what the Women's Medical Society was about. Gosnell had a simple solution for the unwanted babies he delivered. He killed them. He didn't call it that. He called it ensuring fetal demise. The way he ensured fetal demise was by sticking scissors into the back of the baby's neck and cutting the spinal cord. He called that snipping. Over the years, there were hundreds of snippings. Sometimes if Gosnell was unavailable, the snipping was done by one of his fake doctors or even by one of the administrative staff. But all the employees of the Women's Medical Society knew. Everyone there acted as if it wasn't murder at all. Most of these acts cannot be prosecuted because Gosnell destroyed the files. Among the relatively few cases that could be specifically documented, was one was Baby Boy A. His 17-year-old mother was 30 weeks pregnant, seven and a half months, when labor was induced. An employee estimated that his birth weight was approaching six pounds. He was breathing and moving when Dr. Gosnell severed his spine and put the body in a plastic shoebox for disposal. The doctor joked that this baby was so big he could walk me to the bus stop. Another, Baby Boy B, whose body was found at the, found at the clinic frozen in a one-gallon spring water bottle, was at least 28 weeks of gestational age when he was killed. Baby C was moving and breathing for 20 minutes before an assistant came in and cut the spinal cord, just the way she had seen Gosnell do it so many times. And these were not even the worst cases. Gosnell made little effort to hide his illegal abortion practice, but there were some, the really big ones, that even he was afraid to perform in front of others. These abortions were scheduled for Sundays, a day when the clinic was closed and none of the regular employees were present. Only one person was allowed to assist with these special cases, Gosnell's wife. The files for these patients were not kept at the office. Gosnell took them home with him and disposed of them. We may never know the details of these cases. We do know, however, that during the rest of the week, Gosnell routinely aborted and killed babies in the sixth and seventh month of pregnancy. The Sunday babies must have been bigger still. I read that to you because it's important to know what we are up against. These are not hypothetical thought exercises. These are not, oh, we need to pass this law just in case. No. We have concrete examples of abortionists delivering babies alive and then murdering them. And we have seen through the prosecutorial effort in Pennsylvania that the law was insufficient to allow for him to be fully prosecuted. He destroyed the records. The Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act would ensure that evil men and women like Gosnell could be prosecuted federally for doing what he did. Again, it's not hypothetical. It's not a thought experiment. Hundreds. The grand jury found hundreds, but they couldn't prosecute all but a few. 
This law is absolutely necessary. It is a must-pass piece of legislation. And it did pass. As you can see on the screen, I've had the screen up all this whole time. It did pass. Every Republican voted for it. Three didn't vote. I guess they weren't there. One Democrat did vote it. The rest voted no. Passed 220 to 210. But it did not pass without Democrats kicking and screaming and complaining all the way. I want to play a clip of Jerry Nadler. Jerry Nadler was against this bill. And shockingly, Jerry Nadler said that providing medical care and bringing dying infants, because remember, these are babies that are born alive, but many of them also have very serious medical conditions as a result of the abortion attempt. On top of that, just babies born alive, you need medical attention. You need someone there to clear your airway, to make sure everything's good. Um, I, I remember when my son was born, it, it, it only lasted 10 seconds, but it felt like an eternity in between when my son was born, when the nurses took him over under the heat lamp onto the table to rub his skin, clear out his airways, get him crying. And when they finally handed them back, handed the baby back to me, it felt like an eternity. In reality, it was, it was like 10, 15 seconds, but it was the longest 10, 15 seconds of my life because you realize in that moment, that baby my son, he needed help. There was fluid in his nose. It's common. It's extremely common for babies to need a little help clearing amniotic fluid from their airways. What you see in abortion clinics is that when abortions fail, when the baby is not killed and is delivered alive, the care that that baby needs might just be that their airways blocked. Might just be that they need to have their their skin rubbed a little bit to stimulate them, to wake them up. Maybe they just need to be put under a heat lamp. These are basic, basic elementary forms of medical assistance. And the abortionists deliberately deny the baby these these uh, these efforts. They refuse to, to keep the baby alive. And the reason for that is simple. The mother, the pregnant woman, came in there and hired the abortionist to kill the baby. For all the talk, do not listen to anyone who says it's about ending pregnancy. If it was about ending pregnancy, not a single Democrat would have stood up there and voted no. Because if it's just about ending pregnancy, when a baby is born alive after a failed abortion, the pregnancy has been ended. If it was just about ending pregnancy, there would not have been a single no vote to this bill. But it's not about ending pregnancy. It's about killing the baby. It's not just that they don't want to be pregnant anymore. It's not just that they don't want to be a mother. Because remember, that baby could be put up for adoption. At any given moment, there's between 1 million and 2 million couples in this country who are looking to adopt. And there's only tens of thousands of private adoptions done every year. I think 600,000 total adoptions, 300,000 total adoptions, somewhere around there, done in the United States every year. So there's many more people looking for babies than there are babies being put up for adoption. No, it's not just about that they don't want to be mother. They want the baby dead. And that abortionist is providing that service. But I want to play this clip of Jerry Nadler because Jerry Nadler seems to be under the belief that if a baby is born alive under federal law, as I showed uh, under 2002 law, is a legal person, he seems to think that it could be more harmful to keep the baby alive than to help the baby survive? The problem with this bill is not that it makes anything, that it, 
is not that it provides any new protections for infants. The problem with this bill is that it endangers some infants by stating that that infant must immediately be brought to the hospital, where, depending on the circumstances, that may be the right thing to do for the health and survival of that infant, or it may not. That is the problem with this bill. It, it, it um, um, directs and, and mandates a certain medical care which may not be appropriate, which may be endanger the life of an infant in certain circumstances. That's why we oppose this bill. Not it's disgusting. I mean, no one actually, you can't actually think that, right? How can anyone possibly claim that saving a baby's life is more harmful to the baby than letting the baby die? I mean, what we're talking about here is basic medical care. Wrapping the baby in a blanket to make sure that the baby doesn't die from exposure. Uh, how is that more harm? I, I'm, I'm not going to try and rationalize it because it, there, there is no, it's not rational. It's irrational. There's no actual argument to be made there. And yet that's what they said. Hillary Shotlin, a Democrat from, I believe, Mich uh, Michigan, quoted the Bible, quoted the Bible in explaining why she voted to let babies who are born alive after failed abortions be left for dead. Court of parental and maternal rights and in opposition to H.R. 26. I'm the first mother in history to represent West Michigan in Congress. This matter is deeply personal to me. I recently shared publicly about my own experience navigating a complex miscarriage and the loss of my daughter. As a pro-choice Christian who chose life, this issue is so personal to me. My faith informs my actions, but it doesn't dictate the policy of an entire nation. And further, when I read the scripture, I turn to passages and I'm guided by passages like Jeremiah 1 verses 5, which states, I Just knew you before that. I formed you and I placed you in your mother's womb. It doesn't say the government's womb or the speaker's womb. It says the mother's it's incredible. womb. I believe life is precious, but I reject the idea that if I embrace the sanctity of life, I also must be forced to invite the federal government in to regulate it. We must protect families from unnecessary government intrusion into the this. most sacred and personal decisions of our the lives and our children's expired. lives. Thank the you. Gentlelady's so let's let, let let's let's wrap let's put a bow on this. She quotes the Bible that before the child was born, when the child was in the womb, God knew that child. She talks about the sanctity of life. And then says that it's not the government's job to protect the sanctity of that life. I have a really hard problem with people like this. People who claim to be pro-life and also be pro-choice. Like, I'm pro-life myself, but I am okay with other people. Makes no sense. I'm writing a new book. Um, it's about 85% done. The Conservative's Guide to Winning Every Abortion Argument. And one of the hardest chapters I'm, I'm having is the one dealing with this argument saying claiming you are pro-life claiming that you believe in the sanctity of life 
quoting scripture that says that the unborn child is a person endowed by its creator and then turning around and still proclaiming that you're okay with abortion and you actually support the expansion of abortion laws. It's very hard, very hard to to argue against that because there's nothing rational about it. It's so irrational. It is so devoid of, of evidence. It's the hardest chapter I've had to write so far. But this woman, Hillary Shotland, Shulton, she fits that bill. With a straight face, she just quoted the Bible saying that the baby is, uh, the, the unborn life is is uh, is God-given. And then she says, oh no, but we have to keep letting it because even though God breathed life into that baby in the mother's womb, it's the mother's womb, not the government's womb. Really, really gross stuff. This next one is Jan Schakowsky, Representative Jan Schakowsky. She says that this bill is bad because forcing abortionists to bring babies to the hospital is unreasonable because in some cases the hospital is hours away. As, uh, as our chairman had said, not only is it illegal to not care for a born infant, but the, the law that you have provided on the Republican side actually can create more harm it requires immediately taking a struggling baby to a hospital. That hospital could be hours away and could be detrimental to the life of that baby. This is nothing more than the part of the effort to make abortion illegal nationally in this country. I object and I urge a no vote and yield back. I mean... How can you argue with that? Because the hospital is hours away, abortionists should have no obligation to take care of a baby born alive. I, I just want to highlight the hypocrisy because after Gosnell, one of the other bills that got pushed in many states around the country would require that abortionists have admitting privileges in hospitals. The reason for this is simple, that considering that this is a very dangerous procedure, don't listen to what any abortion uh, abortion lobbyist says. Abortion is dangerous. Women go to the hospital. Women die from this procedure. The bills that were, that were introduced and passed in the wake of Gosnell would require that abortionists have admitting privileges so that if there is a life-threatening situation, the abortionist can follow the patient to the hospital and ensure that all the information relevant information is transferred to hospital staff and hospital personnel. Democrats, abortion advocates, fought back against that. And they said, how dare you? There's no reason for doctors to have admitting privileges in a hospital. There's no reason for doctors to have to be close to a hospital. And now, just a year or two later, after all those debates, those same Democrats Say, oh, well, th this bill is unreasonable because the abortionists are too far away from hospitals. So they reject regulations that would force abortionists to be close to hospitals. And then they reject bills designed to protect the victims of these abortions because the abortionists are too far away. It, see, round and round we go. Round and round we go. And I want to play this last one. Just remember what she's talking about. She's talking about protecting babies, born alive human persons. And she's calling that extremist. Lady from Oregon, Ms. Bonamici. 
woman from Oregon is recognized for one minute. Thank you, Madam Speaker. This bill is extremist, dangerous, and unnecessary. Extremist because it would criminalize doctors with up to five years in prison and put them in fear of providing life-saving, medically necessary procedures to those who are pregnant. Dangerous because the bill has no exceptions to protect the health of the patient and no exception for cases where there is a serious fetal anomaly. And unnecessary because, as Mr. Nadler said, it's already... It's unbelievable. It really is unbelievable. We are up against evil. We are up against real evil. And I just want to put up on screen one more time and, and bring this up again. The CDC stats. After Congress passed a bill proclaiming that children born alive after failed abortions were in fact human persons under the law, 134, 134, yeah, 134, 133 um, babies died after initially being born alive. And the reason for many of these is that the abortionists denied them the same life-giving and life-saving care that they would have given to wanted children who were being born on purpose. So we're, we're up against real evil here, people. And I got I got to say, um, since since my last podcast, I've been I've been spending a lot of time writing this next book, which if you haven't already got my first book. Is available on Amazon, The Conservative's Guide to Winning Every Gun Control Argument. I highly recommend that you get it. I want to say thank you to everyone who's already bought their copy. Um, I hope it helps. Writing this next book on abortion has been really tough because it is, as the title suggests, talking about every abortion argument and talking about how to refute it, talking about why it's terrible. And, And doing that, it's made me realize just how deplorable these people are. The arguments that they put out there. Like, oh, we can't we can't save a baby's life who's born alive because saving the baby could actually be worse than letting it die. Like, oh, you can't force abortionists to take the baby to a hospital. Hospital could be hours away. Well, yeah, if it was any other person, you would call a helicopter, they'd be airlifted, right? That's expensive. They don't want to do that. Now, it, it, reading through these arguments and, and seeing uh, another really hard part of writing this new book is figuring out what I want to show people. I've seen things that I can't unsee. Looking through pictures from court cases, um, abortions, uh, the remains of children. I don't know if I want to show it. And, and it's been really hard. It's it's It has been very draining. I, I did not expect that I would become this emotionally invested in this book. I thought it would just be a straightforward reason, logic, ethics, philosophy, a little bit of theology. But it, it has been very draining. And to see it still happening is... It's so demoralizing. Like I looked online looking at how how media outlets are covering this. And instead of covering what the bill is actually about, instead of talking about what I just talked to you about, about how necessary this bill is, the headlines simply read, House Republicans ram through first anti-abortion bill. Which this isn't anti-abortion. This bill has nothing to do with regulating or restricting abortion. This bill simply says that when an abortion is finished, 
if the baby survives, the baby must be kept alive to the best of the doctor's ability and must be promptly transported to a hospital so that that baby will have the best chance of survival. It has nothing to do with abortion. But if you listen to these people, listen to these Democrats screeching on the floor of the House of Representatives, you would think that this would, was an attempt to ban abortion. And as I said, the reason they are up in arms against this is because abortion is not just about ending the pregnancy. It is about killing the child. And they are not willing to accept a world where a child condemned to death by his mother, his or her mother, and the abortionist would be allowed to survive. So we're going to keep an eye on this. It's go I don't think the Senate's going to vote on it. Probably not, since the Senate is under Democrat control. Um, but we're going to keep an eye on this. And if Republicans really care about this issue, this will be a this will be something that they push the next time it comes. It comes up for a spending bill. They will demand this. They will demand this. They say, nope, government shutdown. Unless, unless you pass this. Pay close attention to how Republicans handle this bill once it starts sitting on um, Democrats' desk over in the, in the Senate side and not moving at all. Watch how few Republicans actually want to keep fighting for this bill. But we're going to keep an eye on it, and we're going to keep following it, and we're going to keep pushing for it. Because, honestly, we, we can't live in a country where, where this is allowed. We can't live in a country where it's, it's okay for the Kermit Gosnells of the world to deliver live, breathing, crying, moving babies and deliberately murder them because that's what the mother wants. Okay, well, before I end this episode, I do want to mention the news of the day, which is that Joe Biden has now discovered classified documents in not one, not two, but three different locations that they were not supposed to be in. Now, when Donald Trump was uh, was <laughs> has house raided for storing declassified documents that still retain classification headers, um, I was very clear in saying that all politicians retain documents. It happens all the time. But Joe Biden went out there and he adamantly said that this was criminal. How dare Donald Trump keep anything? <laughs> Well, sure enough, Joe Biden kept a lot. He kept a lot. And one of the latest revelations is that he kept a lot in his guitar, in his uh, garage. I almost said guitar, in his garage. Now, this is a screenshot from a Joe Biden campaign video of him backing in his Corvette into his garage. And I circled there a bunch, a pile. It looks like there's a binder. looks like there's documents, a lampshade, a pile of stuff. Well, we know that the classified documents that were discovered in his garage were discovered next to his Corvette. That's where they were stored. So this is the only real footage we have of that area. And I'm seeing binders. I'm seeing papers. I'm seeing, I'm seeing legal boxes. Well, Joe Biden didn't like that this was coming back to bite him. Remember, Joe Biden is the one who um, attacked Donald Trump for even retaining anything. Here's a bit of Joe Biden's response to be called out by Peter Ducey for illegally storing classified documents in this manner. Classified material next to your Corvette. What were you thinking? Let me, uh, look, I'm going to get a chance to speak on all this, God willing, soon. But as I said earlier this week, people, and by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage. 
Okay, so it's not like you're sitting out in the street. So but anyway, yes, as well as my Corvette. Um, but as I said earlier this week, people know I take classified documents and classified material seriously. I also said we're cooperating fully and completely with the Justice Department's review. As part of that process, my lawyer has reviewed other places where documents in my, uh, of, from my time as vice president were stored, and they finished the review last night. They discovered a small number of documents of classified markings and storage areas in file cabinets in my home and my, in my, my, my personal library. This uh, was I'm, done I'm, in the... I'm turning it off. I'm turning it off. I, I can't listen to it. You, just, you see he's full of crap, right? He's full of crap. Now, this is the important difference. The important difference is Donald Trump has, has said from the beginning that he declassified it. He has said from the beginning that he had a standing order that any time he took documents out of the Oval Office and brought it to his residence, that those documents were declassified. We are, we've also been told by the aides that were around him in the final hours of his presidency that he did declassify these documents, the documents that he had in his possession that the FBI raided him for. The important difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden is that as vice president, when Joe Biden acquired these documents, he was not a classification authority. The vice president cannot unilaterally declassify documents. That is a power that resides in the president. So Joe Biden cannot claim that he declassified them. He can't do it. Just like Hillary Clinton couldn't claim that she declassified them. She is beholden to the bureaucracy that deals with declassification. The president constitutionally is not. There is nothing in the executive branch that can be, de- that can be declared to sit over the president. <clears throat> the president makes the ultimate decisions. And if the president says he wants to declassify it by waving his hands over a document and just speaking it out loud or writing it down on a napkin and handing it to an aide, that the president can. The president absolutely can. Joe Biden cannot. The vice president cannot. Well, today, <clears throat> Attorney General Garland announced that a special counsel will be looking into Joe Biden's mishandling of classified documents. Don't hold your breath, though, because I was looking into this special counsel. He has a history of working with Rod Rosenstein. So we'll, we'll see. I, I, not exactly uh, not exactly someone you'd expect to be, uh, to be a, a fair arbiter of justice. But we'll see. We'll see. One thing's for sure, though at least politically, the DOJ cannot cannot justify further prosecution of Donald Trump. Now, legally they can, but politically, looking at how this is all interpreted politically, they can't do it. They can't do it. Unless they prosecute Joe Biden just as fervently. But here is another little, little nugget. If you actually look Hunter Biden on a background check form that he filled out in 2007 claimed that he owned the house where Joe Biden was storing these classified documents in the garage. Claimed to own that house. And in a late night television interview, Joe Biden told, I think it was Jimmy Kimmel. It might have been Jay Leno. It was a while ago. It might have been Jay Leno. Joe Biden said that Hunter had surprised him that year by having the engine of his Corvette rebuilt. Hunter Biden was in the garage. These documents were not kept in the proper manner. 
when you can have Hunter Biden snorting cocaine, walking around in the, in the garage with these documents, not secure. And I will note, I will note that it's important to point out, you can see there on the side, you see what security features this garage has? It's a wooden door and it has glass paned windows. That is how Joe Biden was storing classified documents. Don't, it was locked. It was a locked garage, but the door was made of wood and the windows were made of glass. But it was locked. That's what he says. It's locked. It was not out on the street. It's locked. I'm sorry. Handling classified documents should have a higher security standard than what you employ to stop the neighborhood kids from getting into your fridge and stealing all your beer or stopping their raccoons from getting into your trash cans. Documents of that nature, classified documents, deserve and require under law a higher level of security. Simply closing your garage door and locking it is not good enough. Is not good enough. I would argue this is worse than Hillary Clinton. Putting them in the garage and having Hunter and mechanics in the garage and God knows who else. 100 times worse than Hillary Clinton. Because at least she had a lock on her front door. At least she did have a skiff. She did have a skiff in her residence. But we'll see. We'll see if anything comes out comes from it. I doubt it. But as I said a little while ago, I suspect that this is going to derail the prosecution of Donald Trump, as it well should. Well, that's going to be it for this edition of the Max McGuire Show. It's good to be back. I'm going to do more of these. Um, not every day, not every week, but... Um, I'm going to do more of them because I do enjoy this. I do being able to talk about things and I do miss it. I really, really do miss it. And I've noticed that a lot of the other shows um, aren't really talking about important things. I mean, they are, but a lot of it's just commentary and calling people trash and calling people liars and talking about the drama of the day of who hates who and who's talking bad about who and who's a traitor to who and who's deep state this, deep state that. There's real issues in this country that need to get fixed. Election fraud is one of them. Protecting babies who are born alive after failed abortions is another one. So we have to keep fighting for these issues because, listen, if we don't, no one is. Well, that's going to be it for this edition of the Max McGuire Show. If you like this podcast, make sure you subscribe to the audio version. It's been a while. There will be more. So you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Podbean, Audible, all those great places. Again, pick up my book if you haven't already. Conservative's Guide to Winning Every Gun Control Argument, available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. The new book, 985-ish percent done, will be released. My plan is Q1 of this year. Stay tuned for that as well. Well, that's going to be it, as I said, for this edition. Remember, everyone, that the fight to take back our country is not over yet. But the only way we win is if we all stand and fight together. See ya.